You are now listening to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank. I'm here with Ginny. Hi. Did I say it right? I felt like I did. You did say okay. it right. Yes, Ginny is perfect. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? So, hi. I um, So, my full name is Shinjini, which is why Robbie said, uh, is Ginny right? I should say it right. Um, I am a postdoctoral researcher. Um, and if you're wondering what that is, it's when you finish your PhD uh, and they can't hire you as permanent faculty yet. So you do, you're in this weird limbo um, state as called a postdoctoral researcher. Um, and I work at the University of Bristol and I've just moved here after finishing my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Um, and I'm a neuroscientist. Yes, neuroscience. So I've talked to people with neuroscience in the realms of sleep, um, also some brain mechanisms in response to certain different stimulants. But what, what particular are you focused in with neuroscience? So what I study is basically how um, different parts of the brain kind of talk to each other. So it's sort of the, what we call long range connections. So, you know, how, say, for example, how the front of your brain might talk to the back of your brain or how different um, centers, so say how your um, visual center might talk to your auditory center, things like that. So I focus particularly on part of the brain that's called the prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of this um, study does it's like this decision-making center. So it's like sort of integrates, um, you know, input that comes from different brains and it, you know, um, computes it and it sends back um, a sort of decision in a way of what you're going to do. So whether that's, are you going to have cereal for breakfast or, you know, are you going to have toast for breakfast? So it's kind of decisions like that, but also decisions um, that are more sort of instantaneous. So, if, you know, if you were, um, maybe a bit threatened, um, you know, what you, whether you would choose to fight or flight. And then, you know, depending on what choice you're making, it would interact with different parts of the brain. And so I'm interested in the second, so there has to be two structures for an interaction, right? A minimum of two structures. Um, and so I'm looking at how the prefrontal cortex interacts with um, the thalamus or, you know, which is um, yeah. a subcortical structure as we call it, it's a midbrain structure, not a cortical structure. Um, and I uh, am studying this, so sort of how this develops, but my background during my uh, PhD, I worked on models of autism spectrum disorders and intellectual disability. And so I'm trying to work on that during my postdoc as well, and trying to see whether our findings can translate into these sort of, um, looking at these sort of disorders. Also with, because um, I know, bring it back a little bit to decision-making, um, or even choice making. That's that's a weird because you could base it on two different things. You could base it also on what's morally right and wrong. Like this can be easily seen with like serial killers, for instance. There's a lot of times they'll bring in like someone for psychiatry to talk about if this person might be not know that they're doing something wrong. Like you know, so for mm -hmm. some movies that you can see, some people go, "I didn't know what I was doing was wrong." Goes, "You didn't know robbing that store was wrong." It was like, "What are you talking about? I I wanted money, I got money." And it's a simple connection as that, but also boils down into something a little bit more complex. I mean we take for granted every single day as people of how complicated our bodies really are. I mean, we just expect to wake up in the morning, expect everything to work 
functioning properly. And that's luck in itself, I think, in a lot of ways as well, too. I mean, the fact that we don't wake up and we just have vision, what happens if that just went away just because something happened where our eyesight got disconnected from whatever thoughts or whatever mechanism that causes to make our brain to be able to let us produce these moving pictures. But yeah. When you base decision making based off morally or what is right, like for instance, somebody sticking their hand on a stove and not having the reflex to pull it away, they keep it on there to the point where it hurts. I mean, our wires can get crossed in certain ways too. And I just find that fascinating how the brain works. Like people always want to explore space. People want to explore our oceans. I just want to find out what's in our head. Yeah, no, that's very true. And yeah, so it's like, um, so there's obviously the the human decision making, which, uh, you know, which is, which is what we um, talk about, but I'm talking about a much, what I'm studying is sort of much more, um, it is not that high level of decision making, right? It's, it's much more, um, if I'm, if I put you in an artificial situation, and you're given a limited number of choices, what choice do you make? You know, do I, if I give you choice A or B, what you're looking at? And so it's that sort of, um, more not as elaborate decision making as oh you know there's more there's morality there's society there's a lot of factors that affect you know um whether i choose to wear yellow today or not so there's a whole bunch of factors it might just be that oh i felt like wearing yellow and it and it might be um a whole bunch of other things so it's um yeah i'm looking at more sort of um instantaneous decision making as opposed to informed long-term decision making you know and then yeah, well, well, we talk about instantaneous decisions, for instance, even if it was instantaneous, if you decided to wear yellow today, what about the people that overthink the word yellow and think that maybe yellow could be aggressive to some people? Mm-hmm. Then it becomes I mean, yeah, a complex that's... decision. Yes, I mean, I think most human decisions, you know, we, we don't think twice about it. Some things we don't think twice about, but, you know, there are, there's no thing as the same decision is instantaneous for all people, right? Yes. So there is, but then when you, the way we study, we, we artificially create these scenarios, right? So it's a much more um, controlled environment for this. So if you so, could yeah. give me a specific example of one thing that you find fascinating through your research, what would it be? Oh, I think I find, I am very um, bad for finding everything fascinating. I am like, <laughs> I'm surprised that I've like chosen one thing to study because I just, I could go to a talk about, I don't know how circuits are built and then find that utterly fascinating and come out and want to do a degree in electrical engineering because I am perpetually curious. Um, but I think what drew me to neuroscience um, is this fact that we don't, there's so much we don't know, you know, and even things we do know, you change the context and everything goes to shot, you know? So there is this thing in, there was a, there was a big thing, it's called engrams. So have you heard of engrams? But you know what that is. Okay. So it's this idea of how memory is stored, right? And so when you are, when you have an incident, you know, lots of your cells are like firing away and, you know, but then for long-term memory storage, it's very inefficient to have the same number of cells, you know, like respond. If you like use up all your cells to store one memory, how are you going to go through life and go through all the others? Yeah. And so people, very, very intelligent people in the past came up with this idea of engrams, which is sort of like the minimum number of cells that you would require that would store this memory. And then if you were um, put back in the same scenario, it would sort of bring it back, right? And so you have these, they're called n-gram cells. And so people always thought that these n-gram cells um, were quite constant, right? For any given situation, they would be constant. But actually it turns out that if you um, do the same thing over and over again, you're actually, your n-gram cells change. 
And that's just ridiculous because if they're constantly changing, then what cells are storing your memory? So I find that very fascinating, like how memory is, is stored, like it's formed, it's stored and how we retrieve it, you know? It's been a while um, since I've had a cell biologist on, but I know that your cells kind of, is it every nine months or seven months that you get, you, they shed and you get new cells as well too. So technically the person that you are, it might be years. I might be getting that time off. I do that with money as well sometimes too, but basically a person that you are right now is not the same person that was maybe a year ago, not only just personality wise, but on maybe on a concept of also structurally wise as well too, because you're constantly re uh, getting rid of old cells and replacing them with new cells. But if cells hold memory, how does that link down to to sense or so there smell. are some cells that you do shed and you grow back so like skin cells you know we shed our skins um blood cells are the ones that you know you're constantly making new ones but it was actually so it was thought for the longest time that the brain once it developed it, it stayed constant right and all you did was as you aged you, lo you lost cells and that's why you know you, you lost memory and that was thought to be the basis for dementia for a very long time um, but actually, we've now found these type of cells. So most cells in the brain um, are what we call, um, well, they're, they're, they don't regenerate, right? You, they, they get formed, they mature, they go to the place in the brain they're supposed to be, they tend to stay there. But actually, there are now cells that have been found, um, this is work in mice, um, that they actually produce new cells even in adults. So, you know, when you go into the adult brain, there's actually still new cells forming. And there is a whole line of research that looks at exactly what you said. How do these new cells integrate into the existing structure? And then how might they come in and, um, you know, do they take over this function of memory storage? Do they perform the same thing? We don't know. Now, unless um, you get so a little skeptical with me here. Now, with brain tissue, for instance, brain tissue doesn't repair itself, right? No. Okay, so is there, we know. is there a type of cell therapy that can help? regenerate some of this brain tissue or some type of mechanism because i've heard things from like the um that music for instance there was a, a story about a person who had lost the ability to walk and he kept going to this metallica concert now it wasn't really the metallica music maybe but the the good environment that he was in the positiveness the really joy and love and admiration of really life people like they're called the metallica family basically their fans are create a positive environment when he was just sitting in his own pain for so long until he decided to start going on these concerts and following them on tour where eventually he was able to start moving his feet again. I mean, the best example of this as well, too, is in Cobra Kai where the kid starts moving his foot after whatever, when they go to a concert or something like that. Now, is that a sense of healing brain tissue? And I know this might not be the area of expertise or whatever, but I'm just skeptical wise with me. Now, is there a possibility that if it's something like that, could we make that into more of a form where we're able to regenerate brain tissue, much like, you know, marijuana might help out with stages of Parkinson's or things of that sort that I've heard before on this show? So there's a whole branch of neuroscience that's called neuroregeneration, right? Which is, which studies exactly this. So they study um, like spinal cord injuries and things that would cause people to lose um, the ability to walk. And the idea is that they're trying to look for therapies that would essentially do exactly this, like repair damaged nervous tissue, right? Now, how that integrates with environmental um, factors, like going to a Metallica concert, I I don't know. I am. It's very hard with anecdotal evidence, right? Because somebody says something, and they have caused in their in their head. It's, you know, there's a there's a causal relationship there, right? And that you know because that's what was important to them. But whether that is what was important to biology, we don't know. 
Right? This is what this is what so, gets me. I don't. This is what's yeah. so fascinating to me is because if I listen to a song, if I smell a certain thing, it's linked to a certain part of my memory. So if I hear something like that, I can understand the Metallica thing. But then it starts to wonder like. What is all these mechanisms? And maybe there is a science to it. Maybe we already know what that is. But a lot of this, every time I talk about like the brain or anything of this sort, it's just an amazement of wonder where you're hearing something different about something else. And you're hearing like I got interested in schizophrenia, especially uh, mostly because I'd lost someone to schizophrenia and end up taking their own life. But I started realizing like we don't really have a cure for it. We have a pill that helps maintain the symptoms. But even then, it's upping the dosages and upping the dosages to be able to fix. So but this st- I mean, for the longest time the cure for schizophrenia was electroconvulsive therapy by using shocks to stop a certain occasion that might be approaching on someone's mind when they start to experience symptoms of schizophrenia that could lead to an accident or an incident or something like that and i'm like i don't know why space is so popular for a lot of people when there's this thing that's right inside of us that we really don't understand there's cte issues there's so much that we're uncovering more and more of every day yet a lot of people aren't super interested and i think it's because it's not about really the experience this type of thing is something inside of yourself and i mean when it comes to issues inside of yourself a lot of people tend to neglect these basic features all because they can maybe it'll go away if they ignore it or maybe they could take a pill and it'll go away and i'm like i don't I think there's a more positive impact, like for the way people think is especially interesting to me, how I can think about one thing and you're thinking about something completely different or how people can create their own realities in a sense. And necessarily they're not wrong either. I mean, it's just a different reality that we live in. Yeah, no, I mean, that's completely true. I find that fascinating as well. Um, I think there's two issues to why more people aren't interested in, in well, neuroscience, science in general, right? One of them is societal. Right. So if you science is historically has been very, very elitist and it's still quite elitist, you know, because everything takes money. Applying to undergrad takes money. Being able to apply to grad school, especially in the U.S., applications take money. Um, You know, if you are are able to get a stipend, not able able to get a stipend. A lot of people work in the summer, but you have to be able to afford to work in a lot of places for for free in a lab in the summer to get the right references to be able to get into grad school right so there is this um this gating that there's a reason it was called the ivory tower like academia was called an ivory tower right because it was very very hard for people to get in it's getting better right but it's still um hard so part of the reason i think there's not as many people um interested in maybe science or you know pursuing an academic career is maybe is partly because of this and the other part is like careers in academia aren't that stable. They're not very secure. You know, for a postdoc, if you're lucky, you get a five-year contract, but most postdocs, um, especially in the UK, are one, two, maybe three years, mine's a three-year contract, uh, you know? And so you have to keep doing this. And so, you know, it's it takes a lot of um, family support, societal support, monetary support, and not everybody's in that position. Um, the other thing, especially when it comes, but you mentioned about like schizophrenia and things and you know, people taking pills is, is the stigma associated with it. And now, you know, obviously as yes, mental health awareness is improving and it's really, really good that there are a lot of mental health initiatives, but it kind of, a, a lot of it to me seems a bit like, um, you know, putting a bandaid to fix a crack because it's, there's, it's a deeper issue, right? Just having a, a one week mental health awareness week or a mental health awareness month um you know where people do things and then kind of forget all about it um especially you know the movement for change movement for 
um, having people be supported so that they're functional, you know, and, and be, be able to live life to their fullest. Um, I think and it also comes, it also comes with ignorance as well too. A lot of people don't want to understand the situation of what a person's going through. And that's, if they can't understand it, then they just put it into a category. I mean, back before ADHD was known as something a little bit differently, it was being mentally disabled. I was put into a classroom where there was just a door and there was nothing in there, just white walls and a desk, all because they thought it was being mentally challenged. They thought I had to separate me from everybody else. But then now ADHD is kind of known. Everyone knows that I just can't sit still. I like to go all over the board. And I think that's what got me more, I guess, related or more understanding of being mentally disabled or even having a depression issue or even having even an addict issue. I went to school for chemical dependency, then eventually went into psychology a little bit. Hey. I didn't get like a master's degree in psychology. So I'm not that I'm not claiming that. Um, But it just, it helped me understand more. And I think that's kind of the part and parcel that comes with everything is that you need to be educated on a lot of these things as well, too. I think a lot of people don't really know a whole lot about neuroscience, at least the common public, because there isn't really a class that focus or that is taught in the 15 years or whatever. You hear the history, you hear the reading, you hear the basic maths, but I'm like, you don't really offer these at high schools to dive into this separate course, much like Greek mythology isn't really offered in high school for that. It's more like a college class or an extracurricular where you have to incentivize people to want to go pursue that. And how do they know if they're not interested in it? If you've never shown them what this is, they have to come across that themselves or have an interest in it based on something that they've seen. And I think that's where we start to see the issues with, I think the reason why mental health is now relatable now, and now it's kind of like everyone can use it as an umbrella in some ways is because everyone kind of has a piece of it. Now the severities are different insomnia I have. So I like to hear about sleep. I like to understand that more because if you experience something that you understand like mental health, Anybody can get it at any age. You being 40 and not having it, you being 50 not having it doesn't mean you can never get it. You could just randomly develop it, and that's where the brain starts to get fascinating again where I'm like – It all boils down to a basics of understanding. People like to label something as this and then not want to look into it or want to understand it more so they can keep labeling it as that. I mean, how many things have we labeled that necessarily might have the wrong label onto? And I think that's where we boil down to my issue with like intellectual intellectual disabilities is like, what do we classify as that? First of all, our education system is very screwed up on that because that's still ADHD is classified as the same category as being mentally challenged still in some educational institutes. I had a teacher tell me that on my show. I was like, what? Like, hang on a second. I know, uh, I know for a fact, but then it's like, Ah, it's just, it gets so mixed up and you start to see that like, there's just a long discourse of kind of the wrong idea because the information at the time wasn't what we have now. And that's where we talk about the understanding capabilities again, too, which is, I mean, another reason why I wanted to talk to you as well, too, to talk about this subject. Yeah. Um, so that, that is, yeah, especially with the whole, um, if I'm wrong, tell me please at any time. No, no, no. I mean, it's different. So different countries use different diagnostic criteria, right, as well, right? The DSM-5, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, I think, um, which is the current version. So this gets updated, right? So definitions of various um, disorders and things, they are constantly updated as well. But that takes time to trickle down from a, from a clinical setting where, you know, how you diagnose a disorder um, to actual classroom benefits, right? So that when a, if a kid presents with 
um, symptoms of ADHD or, uh, you know, um, any kind of um, challenging behavior, how we deal with it. And that, that, so that takes time, right? Because policy, uh, policy takes time, but even if the policy comes into effect, it becoming widespread, it becoming commonly accepted, all that takes time. So your point about raising awareness is, is basically hitting the nail on the head. What we need to do is actually get more people that, that work on this, get clinicians in and talk about these things. Right, and make it just um, more commonly talk, yeah, just, just more common for people to have these conversations um, and see how best we can support um, people that might have um, additional challenges and you know how they can get the same sort of fulfilling experience in school um, than you know what their predecessors weren't able to get. So, yeah. yeah. It's it's kind of like um when I was in school I knew ADHD was like it was kind of like take a pill and get over it I never took any pills for it because I was more afraid of the side effects that would come with it um mostly I think my doctor probably might have amped it up a little bit but scared my parents out of not doing it um it, it, but dyslexia was one of the major ones when I was in school that people talk about like you have dyslexia oh then you know you get a pass on this and it's like I don't necessarily agree with giving everybody a pass on it. I think it's more about adapting to a different form now. That means you have to make it more in their own. And I mean, it boils down to the educational teachers have too big of a workload when it comes to the matter of students they have to teach as well, too. But it's also keeping it fun and engaging, but also adapting per person, because I think and I understand how hard that is to do. If you go to a high school with 900 kids in one class, like one senior year or something like that, that's difficult. But it's also about where we're putting our time and effort in as well, too. I mean, I think the reason why I don't just all out hate the education system is because I had a very few select group of teachers, um, probably four throughout all my 15 years, that really took the time and effort. One of them I had on my show as well to talk about it, too, about it's those people that are incentivized to want to go chase down these educational careers and want to do these types of things, too. But nobody really wants to look into something unless their kid experiences it or someone that they know experiences it or someone that they care about experiences. Is it and that's I mean, I don't want people to have feel the need that they have to do that because all now it's going to affect their life that they have to now research into this. I'm like, you should just know ahead of time as well, too. And I don't expect people to do extra education. No. But I mean, should it be that much of a job? I mean, we look at things like that as like, why should I have to go do that if it doesn't affect me? It's like, well, I don't want you to look at it like a job. Maybe just look at it in case you ever do come into a scenario, maybe a hostile situation. You don't have a situation that goes in the worst way when you can actually talk to someone. I mean, this is why we have people that are interested in suicide helplines, all because they have a different perspective of looking in on this situation, being able to help. It's not your job to talk someone down off a roof, but the people that want to do it because they actually give a shit because they understand the situation uh yeah so there's a couple a couple of things that you said the first is the fact that you said yeah, you don't hate on the education system and i um i smiled at that because it's true you can't hate on something right that doesn't change the system just going oh this is this is broken and leaving it is not going to miraculously then fix the situation right and so um what we need i think the i think that's the answer to almost a lot of the world's problems. What we need is actually people that are interested in investing in these, right? Investing in these scenarios and um, in these um, causes so that it's not such a chore to have to go and find out. So say tomorrow, you know, your kid gets diagnosed with ADHD, you then don't have to go away and do all of your research because this is something that, you know, the schools are prepared for. There's somebody that's, you know, send them um, some kind of guidance of, you know, these are adaptable practices that you can um, use for so something as simple as using 
um, different fonts, right? There's, there's fonts that are better or worse for um, people with um, dyslexia or, or dyspraxia. So there's, you know, things like that, things that can be done. So it doesn't become this Herculean individual task for people to go, oh, this is now going to affect my life. Where do I go to find out? And there will always be more information to be found out. But then if, if we can make it accessible, and this comes back to actually academia being very much an ivory tower because a lot of academic research is behind paywalls, right? And so now open publication is becoming more of a thing. But um, so for a lot of people, if they want to find out more and want, want to find out what the science is, they actually can't because it costs like, you know, $90 or whatever, an article or a subscription for one month or something ridiculous, right? Um, and not everyone can afford to shell out that kind of money. So I think it's, um, yeah, it is, it, it's something that has to be tackled on a lot of different levels. And unless, um, and obviously the end result takes ages to be, to be seen. So now that there is a push to have more open publication, have all of this, that's going to have a trickle-down effect, but it's not going to have a trickle-down effect tomorrow, right? And then it also has to be pushed for by people who are in power, who make these policies, who decide what's important and how much money is invested in what. And I think that's um, definitely a conversation above my pay grade, but yeah, I, that those are my two cents on it. What, um, through your research at least, what's one thing that you just, I guess, were either appalled at or one thing that you just like couldn't get your head wrapped around? Um, so one thing I was appalled at is um, the fact that a lot there has been um, this whole, oh, sorry, my brain's just gone blank for a second. Welcome um, to Out of the Blank Podcast. Happy. Yes, help. sorry. I was just like, <laughs> I had a thought and now it's gone. <laughs> And so I think one thing um, I was appalled at was how um, uh, sometimes how inaccessible a lot of these, a a lot of, um, yeah, just how inaccessible a lot of academia is and how inaccessible a lot of research is. And so, you know, it goes back to this thing of like, in when I was in school, science was not a career. You know, if you were good at studies and you were good at science, you became an engineer or you became a, a doctor. So I grew up in, in India, right? And those were your options. And if you didn't want either of them, you became a computer scientist. And and that that was it. That was your science options, right? And then if you, you know, so doing like um, a bachelor's in just straight biology was not looked upon very well because you would, your most realistic career option was to become a teacher. Yeah. Right. And so I found so it's that that inaccessibility of it. But I understand why, because there's just so much not enough people know about it. Right. Not enough people are aware of of just especially in India, of straight science as a full time career. It's getting better now. There's more outreach and things like that. But it's the same here where a lot of um, scientists, myself included, are very middle class. Right. And so it's just it. Yeah, it, it's how classist it is and I think that that's something it's not research exactly but it's sort of within academia just how classist it is is really does bother me a lot I th- I probably have the same issue um I've talked to a lot of academics on the show I mean almost out of the almost the thousand episodes I have I probably have at least 700 something academics from probably every single field and even the minor newt ones where there's like one about just badger uh breeding which is like very specific but that person really loved that topic but I think 
when you look at it, a lot of people like where it says trust the science or where it hits this level where it's like people don't really tear down academia, this type of talk. And I'm like, I think it's because I have come across a few people through academia that do talk down and then that becomes an issue. And it's like when you really look at it and I get it because the ivory tower thing, I think, put it a good example in my head, which is it is hard as shit to get your career going in that field because of how many like roadblocks there is and how many obstacles they make you jump through. So by the time you get up there, you do feel like you're a little bit above, but I don't think that's everyone. That's definitely not everyone. I've had the best communication conversations with people that were academics. And I think that's where we start getting the understanding thing is just talking at the same level playing field and just realizing that everyone's going through these tough times and these tough situations. I mean, I also find it weird when there are people that will scoff depending on where your degree's from, not only just the college, but also which country you prefer to get your degree from. They can that a lower form of education maybe you have more resources but you took the ability to go pursue whatever degree that was in that field that it was that means you're obviously passionate about doing so i mean someone doesn't go into philosophy or sociology or whatever they want to call it for the money that just doesn't happen so i think there needs to be a whole perspective change on this aspect of like you know i, I like stem i like these small little niche you know communities or black stem whatever you want to call them but I also go, I boil it down to people as well, too, no matter who you are, what you have, whatever you got. If you're interested in promoting a more education, a more overall thinking about things, too, and even with a flat earther. I'll talk to them too because I like the brain's kind of understanding and trying to step into another person's reality because I think that's where you don't really see the shame aspect anymore. You start seeing the acceptance, and I think that's what – really promote society forward is when not this giant groups of saying acceptance acceptance but how many of those are so closed off where i'm like i get it for safety but at the same time it's like we're i'm not asking for world peace but i'm asking for an easy way to understand each other just by looking through the other person's lens and that is a very difficult thing to do to be able to understand the pain that someone might go through but it doesn't help to at least try I mean, that's true, right? Because a lot of um, issues happen because of this um, looking down on the other person that's asking, you know, asking you a question or questioning what you hold to be true. And I completely agree that people should speak to each other as, as equals, right? And that goes both ways, right? So as long as two people are open to having a conversation about a controversial topic, Right, without resorting and then and actually when they're talking or arguing, they're they're attacking the arguments and not the person because that's how it, that's what it evolves to very very quickly and we see this in politics every single day, right? And so that's important to like like you say to have people actually trust the science. The scientists need to become humans and not just somebody that does some you know that, that does something behind um, a closed room. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that that is up uh, is, is critical. Right. Well, we're and the we're community. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. You know, the, the, yeah, no, sorry. The communities, I think, are they, they are born out of necessity, but they're also incredibly empowering and can do very, very um, useful work and actually highlight issues. Right, that people have just like you, like you previously said, just ignored because they've just gone, oh, this doesn't affect us at the minute. We're just gonna, you know, put this in a box and not think about it. 
Yeah, right. I mean, it even goes down to like open science, for instance. That's a good hashtag because it also lets the public see what other people are working on too. I go to like private hashtags like journalist or you know documentarist or someone who's an author or someone who's an academic or someone who's on a PhD journey that maybe doesn't really care about being on a show or something. Because I like to see like you got a whole different thoughts. You got something, and you don't need to be someone that's on a Joe Rogan or need to be someone that's on the TV talking about a certain issue. You got something that you actually it might be like, hey, it's it's interesting to me, but it's like, it's actually pretty interesting when you start expanding, like getting, letting the public know what's going on on these aspects of things too. That's the beneficial side too. But when you come onto Twitter, I mean, Twitter's a bad place to try and find a lot of it, depending on what groups is usually a hard place to get like good content for stuff, but it's also a great place of, you know, sharing ideas. I think that's what social media has a very beneficial aspect to, but also like those sharing of ideas and those follows, or even just looking at someone's basis, get to judge about a person and also start to understand how a person sees things. It opens up a different doorway. I know I get it. It's hard through social media, but I mean, even just treating someone like just with the bare necessity of like, I mean, I'm 23. I, I'm guessing you're around the same age as I am. I uh, know I'm a lot older. How old are you? <laughs> that's okay. I'm 29. Not a lot. That's not old. I was like, you're, you're gonna, I thought you were going to toss out like 60. I was like, holy shit, you moisturize. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I think it's important because it, it does even, no matter if it's age, if it's a younger person talking to an older person, if it's an older person talking to a younger person, there's this idea of understanding that really starts with the basis of just wanting to. And I think that's important because, I mean, science is fascinating as hell to me. I also love the like the, the magic kind of stuff, too. I'm all over the board because I found myself super interested in one thing, which was psychiatry and really kind of understanding like the psychology about a lot of shit that people really experience on a daily basis and how a lot of things get misunderstood. But I also like the way people think about things. And you start to realize whether it's a person who's into the weirdest conspiracy theories to the person that's into like the most normal stuff. They think along the same basis, but they all have this more different kind of roadway they take. And I'm like, that's what it is. That's, I mean, the perspectives of things are intense and awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I agree with the um, social media thing for sure, because you get, um, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of downsides to social media as well. But the good thing I found about social media and about, you know, like academic Twitter, which is, I suppose, the, the part of Twitter that I am most active in um it's really nice because you get people that come in with all different perspectives all different backgrounds and you know they sometimes voice their concerns they will um share victories they will share failures and it's all very supportive and i really really like that what is interesting to me from a social like from um i don't know what perspective this is but like as as a bystander i support is is you can go and look at people's echo chambers and see you know what the, the, the little echo chamber that they formed and what their views are and how they're reinforced. And I find that fascinating. Check out my, oh, my algorithm guy is so mad at me because I'm like all over the board. I'm all the way on this side and then I'm all the way on the other side. I'd like that, but it does get a little bit difficult because they're, I just, I just, I disagree only with certain things. And I think the things I disagree with, but I'm willing to understand is just when there are people like I've saw a page that say like all people, all children can be born racist. I'm like, all right, what? Like, now, now I just look at it like you're so one-sided onto something where I'm like, you got to at least like, oh, you got to, I like the open community aspect of things. I think that's why, I mean, you can't judge me off one episode. You'd have to look back through a couple, but I think 
you know, you, I can come off as a crazy nut in a lot of my episodes. I'm happy you did my show because I know some episodes recently were probably a little bit crazy, but there's also a more serious, more willing to learn. And I think that's like that with every single person that you meet. And I don't, people want to put you into a category, whether you're on wealth class, whether you're on social status, whether you're on intellectual abilities, man, I, some of the people that are the worst academics are probably some of the smartest people outside of it. And then some of the people that are smartest academics are, you know, not so nice outside of academia as well too. And I look at it like you can't judge it by whatever a person pursues, but you can understand what they're pursuing by looking at their, who they are as a person. I mean, a lot of people that are really come from bad backgrounds tend to go into psychology. A lot of people that have bad home lives tend to go into family stuff as well too, when it comes to family psychology or something like that. I mean, same thing with addicts. Why is a person going to a certain drug? Probably because something's going on in their life too. But the issue is that they treat them like they're broken and then you can't do that because you got to treat them as a person. I mean, same thing when it comes to someone who's intellectually disabled. We were talking off air. Treat them as a person. Talk to them. You know, don't look, don't like the dog talk. People do that to, like to normal people too, which is nuts to me. I'm like, how do you not get slapped? But it's just having a conversation and watching. Like I have a couple, I, at least in my town, there's a grocery store, um, a buddy I grew up with basically. I mean, not like every day hanging out at each other's house or something, just someone that was on my street. We rode the same bus. His, um, his mom works at the food, uh, grocery place, food line. Um, he's, he pushes carts there and I talked to her. I was like, so like, how's he doing? Is everything going with good? I'll talk to him as well too. But she tells me her biggest fear is like when she dies or something, like he's going to be like 40 or something living at her house the whole time. And she's afraid about what's going to happen afterwards. And obviously there's programs installed to be able to help somebody, you know, make sure they're still able to feed themselves and do these things of the sort. But when you can understand that perspective and you can really grab a wholeness and there's so many people out here complaining about their own lives and how shitty their lives is because they couldn't go to a party or something like that. I'm like, do you understand like there's something bigger at play here too? Like the fact that you can get up and have a conversation and walk is awesome. And then the fact that like, go back to my buddy's mom, for instance, you know, talking to her, she's like, but he's such a loving kid. He's such a wholesome person. He doesn't have any room for BS. I'm like, I can be jealous in that aspects as well too. Sometimes you can't step down from your own ideals to really understand and really be grateful for the things that you do have. So there's two things there. The first that I agree with is that, you know, you, you definitely, you know, looking at other people's lives, looking at other perspectives is fundamentally important, right? And it's obviously incredibly important um, from policy point of view and from the support and everything that's available. What um what you did say, which I am a bit more hesitant to agree with, is comparing yourself to others, right? Just because somebody else has it worse doesn't mean that your problems aren't valid, aren't valid. Oh no, yes, they're, uh, on different, yeah, they're, they're on different planes, they're on different um, you know, and I completely understand that, yeah, you know, you you need perspective, you need to broaden your horizons and um, you know, actually get a frame of reference for for your own life your maybe your own privilege but it also can go down this very slippery slope and you know it's um so i yeah that was I the might only have, thing i might I'm have like, uh miss kind of interpreted that i didn't mean it like that i meant more like no, there's a lot yeah, of, i'm sure you didn't of, but it's um, there's a lot of comparing that goes on in society and i don't think that's a just basis to really either devalue or try and value yourself there's people that'll value their own life based on i have a card you don't or those people that'll devalue. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I I don't I I look at it like just the fact like I I could I'm probably more miserable than half the people out there that might be going through. It. But that's a comparison too. But I look at it like you go through your own situations, you have your own avenues, and it also 
leads into a bigger idea of you can't deem your success or base your success or timeline or plot plan, whatever you want to call it off of a motivational book. I mean, I get why they're needed too, but you can't try and deem yourself or structure yourself off someone that you see on social media, someone that you want to live like, live like an influencer. You got to find your own rabbit hole in whatever way it takes to make yourself or whatever you feel like you can get up out of bed and not hate yourself. Cause I mean, a lot oh, of people yeah. don't like, I think during the pandemic, the big thing I talked about was about opening up who you were. Like, did you find yourself? And a lot of people go, well, I realized after working 30 years in a job and I lost it like that, it's kind of like, what do I want to do? Then they start making hot sauce. Now they got their own company and brand going out there. And I'm like, that's kind of like the important stuff is that like, you can, you only know what you know, and you only see what you see. But if you look a little bit past that, what do you feel? Yeah, no, that's true. Um, yeah, again, sorry, I'm like talking about the same thing. I feel like a little bit like a broken record. But yeah, it's the thing of, you know, the pandemic, um, again, people, you know, who lost their jobs. And for some people, they went away and, you know, made their own hot sauce and have their own company. But again, that comes down to, you know, you've got the means to get that started, right? And I'm not saying that people shouldn't do that. And people should absolutely, you know, listen to themselves, listen to what feels right, what doesn't feel right. But for a lot of people, it's just not an option. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can't, you know, people that work three jobs, they're not, you know, it, it, it comes down to trying to balance that out. Right. I mean, you could be and, happy doing anything like that. I know someone that just gets <laughs> drunk in a McDonald's parking lot and that's happiness to him. Is that a healthy way? I don't know, but I'm not going to judge him for it. You know, if he's able to get through the day, he's functioning, doing a job and everything as well as that sort too. If that's the life that he wants and he understands it. Then I'm not, it's, there's a lot about changing and there's a lot about like people trying to change other people, trying to do this type of thing too. But I look at it, I was like, do you feel like the need to change? It's like, I, I work at a gym. I'm a fitness guy. So I see so many people come and go, well, they say, go to the gym, get healthy. And I'm like, but do you want to? Like, you could do the same shit if you just go hiking. Like, it's not, it's, if you want to get, like, lose some weight, then you can find other ways to do so as well, too. Being in a gym facility where you might feel uncomfortable or something like that. And I'm not incentivizing people not to go to the gym. I'm just saying that's not your only option. There's never just one option in life. It's never that. There's never two. There's a billion. There's so many more than you could probably even fathom. Just like the universe, it's infinite. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah, you should um, go for things that work for you. And, you know, sometimes it's trial and error. Sometimes it's going to the gym to realize you don't like going to the gym, you know. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, if I had to ask you what's your goal that you're really aiming for with just the field of research that you study, um, is there an end product to it or you just love kind of finding new information every single time? Um, for me, it's definitely finding new stuff out and, you know, gaining, um, like I say, I'm like perpetually curious. So for me, it's just finding stuff out and I'll keep doing research for as long as somebody will pay me to do research, um, you know, and to just find out how these different parts of the brains talk to each other. And, you know, at some point, maybe venture into, okay, they're talking to each other. When are they talking to each other? How do they start talking to each other? So, you know, it's, it's learning that sort of um, how the, how all these connections develop. And then, you know, at some point, what would be very cool to study, which I don't know how anybody does it, but would be how we prioritize information, right? If I'm, if I'm hungry and I'm sleepy, you know, one day I might choose to eat, one day I might choose to sleep. And what, what changed, 
Right? That's got to be what that's got to be some like environmental something influence that comes into your life. Like people will, uh, if they come from a good family value or something like that, they sometimes prioritize family first and then other people prioritize work first because they have a good work ethic or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think at some point it'd be very cool to study just how we prioritize things. But yeah. And so now yeah, that's if, you, if you could choose a whole different career path. Oh, I'd be a chef. <laughs> <laughs> why why i have definitely not given this a lot of thought or anything um, but yes if i had made different decisions i would like to be a chef what type of restaurant i um it would be an indian restaurant it would be indian home cooked food um, is that because like you really home- appreciate like the stuff you had like with your family and things of that sort Yes, and I've cooked, um, so my mom also loves cooking, and my grandmother used to love cooking, but also would send me out of the kitchen because she's like, you need to study and not cook, um, because she was like, she's born in the 30s, and she's like, very, very feminist, like, you will study, um, so it's like, all right. uh, but no, I really, really enjoy cooking, and I, um, and I, it's, again, it's also because of the science, right? It's, it's chemistry at the end of the day. It's how, what, how flavors go together, how heat affects your food, how, um, you know, the surface area and the oil to onion ratio affects how the onion cooks. And so there's, there's the science part of it as well. Um, but there is all of the memory, all of the comfort. And um, for me and for my family, and I think it's true for a lot of Indians, food is just a big priority. It's how we all come together. And it's true across a lot of cultures. But yeah, so, so food, I would do stuff with food. I think um, backup plan for my partner and me is to um, get a food truck and, and drive it through South America. That, that oh, yeah. is so given that, you know, chef training is uh, will take far too long. And uh, yeah, the beverage industries, the, the hospitality industry doesn't have the best of reputations. So let, food me, trucking uh, let me hear this food truck name. I know you thought about it. No, we don't have a name yet because we're still oh, arguing. Okay. Still arguing what's the it, debate so. what's what are the options um <laughs> we have the debate is what kind of food we want to serve right because if it's a food truck you can't do sort of homey food has to be street food but then do we want to do um like full indian street food i love so indo-chinese food which is what i want to do but what my partner does not want to do um, and then we're also like, maybe we'll just do pizza and just have like wacky toppings on pizza. And yeah, so we don't know if it'll, it'll be something or the Are other. You, would you look for something that would be incentivizing for you and your partner to make together? Or are you looking for something that's going to like spark up the like a culture or spark up some type of like new trend like people i just saw my, my i have a couple of buddies who are friends of the podcast who've been on and they make crazy whack ideas and stuff of that sort but um uh my buddy robert dumont they make like you know avocado or some type of like thing that's infused into something random that people have not really like tried before and it's like a spark new trend um so i think i would be doing all the cooking because i have control issues and my partner is not allowed to do or if he cooks i'm not allowed in the kitchen basically because i'm like but you're chopping the onions wrong um yeah so i would do all the cooking um i think it's the idea of i the reason i really like this indo-chinese idea is because it's what uh, it's like the the junk food i grew up with right it's what it's what i loved eating and it's this joy of bringing it to to other people and because it tastes nothing like actual chinese food um so it, it's really nice and like well maybe i want to share some of this with you um i don't think i have the know-how for trends but i think it's really cool right because it's interesting to me how flavors 
would mix with each other how but yeah I don't know if I am the person for that I think I'm very much like but try this recipe it's delicious yeah, that's why I appreciate like cooking so much is not only the craft and how like hard of an industry it is but I also appreciate like just the amount of smells and how they can like if you really like go to a restaurant if you truly and I don't want to be the person that stalks other people like looks at them through from another table or something but when someone like appreciates food and it's like getting a link back to a certain memory like Thanksgivings were always fun because everyone would grab a bunch of food but now whenever I have turkey or something I always think of those rare occasions and like I live in a seafood town so all we have is like you know fish or shrimp or something like that so whenever I smell like a nice like cocktail sauce like shrimp i just get brought back with everything it doesn't if i'm traveling somewhere or something it, something pulls that out even if i smell it in a store i'm like oh this remembers when i was doing jet skis during the summer and it was like yeah i love that amazing experience Think especially a nice domino's pizza crust bro like that i don't it's the oregano i know it's the oregano i found it and i put it on my salads and i'm like okay so this tastes like a domino's pizza but it's that combination and those weird little things where it's like and especially doing fitness and all that you find every trick you possibly can to like minimize calories get your protein intake so those senses spices and smells stuff you really get to appreciate when you know you go through something like this or if you just want good flavored food and you know what you're eating it's not the i mean it's healthy but it's not necessarily the fun stuff yeah no but that's the and again this like now goes back to neuroscience like but like how, why do some foods trigger more memories? Not necessarily better or worse memories, but you know, there'll be some smells that will be like, oh, but that's the one that you always remember. But you know, you could have eaten something else a hundred times and you just won't, um, you know. You gotta give me one like food. Like link back into it. You gotta give me one food in your category or in your aspect of your life that has just one heartfelt memory with it. Oh, so we do this thing. Um, so it's basically potato fries, right? So it's shredded potato or like very thinly chopped potato that's fried. Um, but we have it. So it's fried in mustard oil from again, from where I'm from. And you have it with just, um, or oh, well, I used to have it with rice and with ghee, which is like a type of butter. Um, and that was it, right? And so this was like my standard when we used to live in Calcutta with my grandparents. And I would, my grandfather would pick me up from school because he'd retired by then. Um, and then I would come home and that's what I would eat because it was like a filler thing that you ate. And oh, I, that just makes me so happy. So like till day, that's like my big comfort food. It's like carbs and carbs with some fat, but you know, it's great. I just thought of the name for the food truck. Oh food. yes. Tell me. Food for thought. That I, I'm sure there's places that exist though, like food for thought almost certainly already exists. But they got, a a neuro, they got a neuroscience education. That's true. That's oh, true. But doesn't neuroscience education contribute to how good your food's going to be? Well, if you gave them like an IQ test or a survey test before they got food, be like, what's a, what's a, what's a food, what, what's a special memory with food? And they'll say like, I, uh, I always had fun at carnivals. And you're like, bam, they like something with sugar or powdered sugar on it. And then boom, there you go. You got this yeah. thing that hooks them back into their memories. That's true. Customized, individually customized food. That would be good. Where like people, you know, the, um, there's a film, right? The Johnny Depp film where it, it, I think it's called Chocolat, where, you know, the person comes in, has a conversation and she finds the perfect chocolate for you. But the idea is the same, right? Like someone comes in, you have a conversation with them and you find their favorite food or something that they would love to eat. I just thought Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, whenever I think of Johnny or Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> how many chocolate films is he in? 
And though this one, I think, is meant to be more serious, but it's a romantic film. I think it's just called Fuller. But I yeah, I don't watch a lot of romantic films. Um, <laughs> I watched Squid Game recently, which was, which is great. Oh it's my a, god, it's, so I don't. Good. What I don't get is that it's like it's like kind of. I wouldn't say murder porn, but it's kind of like. It's terrible. It's horrible to watch this stuff. But then it's like you're stuck to it. I'm like, this started from Ninja Warrior. It led to Wipeout. And now it's leading into people dying. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the next step is. My favorite um, uh, description of Squid Game is it's Black Mirror meets Hunger Games. Which is. That does fit. Yeah. Just the games, though. I try and think if I would survive them. But I think I, I would think two like this is uh, i think the best part about that show is it kind of shows the perspective of like a bunch of people tackling a problem and then someone comes in with a perspective you've really never seen and it's just like weird how people think about things sometimes it's the is it not is it thinking too much or is it thinking too little and then it's just kind of finding like that balance or how people get attracted to certain things as well too yeah and everybody yeah like you said will come will uh... Uh, attempt to solve the problem with their own experience right and that's like can be completely different perspectives so yeah yeah. Yeah, that's what i'm telling you it does kind of all boil down to like the brain and thought really in a way i mean i'm surprised like there are times like when i when i think a situation like for instance the power just going out the first thing i thought was like oh wait for it to come back on and then i was like what happens if it doesn't come back on and then you just start thinking and it's also the reactionariness of every time i walked into a room and that I'm just saying this just happened to me. So I'm in trauma right now, but I would flick a light switch and knowing the power wasn't on, like it's that thing too. Like, do you ever find yourself doing something that you necessarily have done, but you don't really need to do it anymore. Kind of like where people develop OCD a little bit. Maybe you don't have OCD, Mm -hmm. but something along that line. I think everybody, we do habitual things all the time, right? Like, um, there's this whole thing of, um, automation where you will if you have aren't like thinking about it sometimes you'll just end up walking or driving to work even though when you left the house that's all what you intended to do and then you'll be like halfway there like wait I'm walking in the wrong direction um so automation is is a big thing right your brain goes into that mode very quickly perfect question for you why when i'm looking for like a place i have to turn my radio down and it's like it helps me oh find- yeah I don't know why, but <laughs> it happens to me too, where I'm just like, oh, I'm like, you know, when you're like looking for a door number and you're like, I turn my headphones. And I'm like, why? I can see just as well with my headphones blaring music. Do you ever but, start, yeah. do you ever start to look at things that like, maybe something that's like been going, not, not even necessarily for you, but with people like the radio thing, for instance, do you ever just start to notice things like that? Like, why does that do that? Like, why do our brains do that? Uh, all the time I think I think I'll do something and just be like but you know so for example like um I make my bed every morning I know a lot of people make their beds every morning but I it's almost a bordering on superstition where if I make my bed the day will actually be like quite okay right it makes you feel successful well yeah it just almost sets you up and you know some of it is just that I've made my bed every single day since I was a kid and so you know if you've made your uh, bed then you're ready to start your day but if I've not made my bed, say I'm like running late or woken up really late and I need to run out and it'll just bother me for the rest of the day. Right. I, and so I either need to talk to a neuroscientist like you, or I need to talk to a therapist because I have a superstition that if I'm on an airplane and there's a baby on there, it won't crash. 
all because God could never take away a baby. And I'm not religious, so I don't know why that superstition just brings me relief. Like, I think we all have factors of relief, which is like, it's interesting because yeah. I try and explain it. People are like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, I don't know. It's just a comfort. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, in general, superstitions don't make any sense, right? Because they're not grounded in anything. It's just, actually, I was listening to, I listen to a lot of thought, uh, fiction podcasts. Like, that's my go-to genre of podcasts. And I'm listening to this one. Um, it's called, I, I, I don't work for them, so I can like not say the name, it's fine. But in that, there is um, a moment where they're discussing cultural superstitions. And it's meant to be like this college class where they're all discussing um, superstitions. And the professor goes around and asks people, what is an urban superstition that you believe in that you know cannot be based on any kind of, like it doesn't make any kind of logical sense. And so that was really interesting. So that came up. What podcast was and that? It's really Oh, it's called the burned photo. Okay. It's yeah, it's really. I mean, it's it's slightly terrifying, but it's really good so far. I'm only three episodes in, so if it goes bad, don't blame me. But yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> have you ever tried to figure out why people get interested into the things they get interested in? Like, um, for instance, like why is true crime so popular for a lot of people? Do you think it's about like solving a mystery, much like a secret or uh, discovering something, kind of like Christmas? You have that wantingness to want to know, like the curiosity of wanting to know what's under that present or what's under that wrapping. Um, probably. I think it's also, um, you know, interest can also be a trend thing, right? Like houseplant sales have risen exponentially, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's uh, not because people earlier weren't interested in house plants but it's just that you know more people have now maybe been exposed to this and be like oh actually this is great right and so now that that's and i think that maybe has happened with, and also that goes especially with the true crime thing goes hand in hand with like podcasts have exploded right in the last decade or so oh, there's so many of them they're hitting a decrease now it went from three million at the start of the pandemic to now back down to a million just i guess because either people got tired of doing it they liked it and then dipped their toes and now it's it's twitch streaming or it's reacting videos yeah yeah so some of it is like you know tied in with, with trends that happen some of it is um just the amount that's available you don't know that much um maybe true crime stuff was as readily available as it as it is so i think part of the interest might just be exposure right and part of it might be the maybe this cultural shift um, for like more serious um, themes, you know, like to having conversations about racism, having conversations about sexism, ableism, all of this is is happening more and more now because people are not calling it a taboo topic. People are not as hesitant to talk about it and to voice their experiences, their concerns. Um, so I think it's a, probably, at least in my head, a mixture of certain, of different elements. Uh, now, uh, we're still kind of stay, staying in like the more like skepticalness a little bit too, but I think I just forgot my question too. It was a good one too. Cause you mentioned the word taboo and it brought to my head. Cause I was like, I try not to make any subjects taboo only because I feel like it gives them more power than necessarily we need them to. I think a lot of times the fear of like talking about certain things or discussing certain issues. Now there's more opinions that are more valid than others, obviously, if it particularly affects you, but I think everyone has a, has a thought that they're able to speak. And I think that's where 
suppression builds up a lot of times too. It causes people to go to the end of the extremes, but I just wish that there's a healthy discourse amongst people. I feel like that's the most beneficial way to get something through. I mean, I've talked to plenty of people that have like dinosaurs aren't real. And I'm like, man, the dinosaurs aren't real. I've talked to a paleontologist who tell you it was, but then you hear them describe certain things. And I've seen the molds that they use to preserve the bones. And I'm like, oh yeah, if you come across that as your first picture, you're going to think dinosaurs aren't real because that does look like a playground that kids will play on. And I think that's important because, I mean, same thing with science, open communication. I mean, I, it's, 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 it's hard because um, especially with astronomy, at least from what I've discovered, and even if you look at the UFO, people that study those things, a subtle little like bump or disagreement turns into this big kind of all out back and forth thing where then they just stop talking to each other. And I'm like, you guys are kind of interested in the same topic just because you have different views on what it is doesn't mean you're necessarily enemies. It just means you guys have that little bump. You can elevate it from there. And I think that's important in anything. I mean, science communication, even when it comes to an academic to a private person like we were talking about before, or a scientist to scientist, sharing results, sharing ideas, lifting every single person up rather than putting one person down. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the way forward, right? We have to have meaningful discourse and be able to learn to disagree and come up with solutions that work, right? Come up with policies that work. That's absolutely, yeah, that, that is what needs to happen. And the fact that you came on my show out of probably listening to some of my crazy episodes and still being <laughs> like, hey, I'll give it a shot. I appreciate that. I'd love to have you back on as well too. Uh, thank you for having me on. This was really lovely. I didn't know what to expect. The, uh, I heard the Illuminati episode and I was like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, a crazy one. But yeah, so um, yeah, I will. Yeah, um, happy to be back if you need, uh, if you would like. Um, of but, course. Yeah. But, Thanks um, very much for this. Before we wrap up the show, I wanted to give you a chance to say where your links are as well, too, so people out there listening can go and find your – is it just your Twitter profile or you got any other site? Um, so it's my Twitter profile. I'm also on the University of Bristol. You can search my you can search my full name. Uh, my boss is also on Twitter. He's really lovely in case people are looking for a lab to join. Uh, he's called Paul Anastasiades. Uh, he is also on Twitter. It's P underscore Anastasiades. Good luck spelling that. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, um, I think that's it. I'm mostly, I, yeah, mostly on Twitter. I think everything else is, um, it is not a public place. Well, I'll make sure I link every all your links in the description so people listening can find this too. And I appreciate you for giving me your time and thank you for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.